This is called The House of Christmas um, by one of my heroes. Uh, I get to talk about both of them today. Um, G.K. Chesterton. It's called The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun, and they lay their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chance and honor and high surprise, but our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless are you and I at home. But we have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts were lost how long ago. In a place no chart nor ship can show under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war, but our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall all men come. To an older place than Eden and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are. To the place where God was homeless and all men are home. Let's pray. Father, send your spirit uh, to draw our attention to or awaken in us our longings for home that we so often suppress and feed with terrible fuel. Longings that make us scared uh, and open up unbelief. We need your help to have courage to do it. But as we come to your scripture tonight and um, as we learn about the things which you have promised your people that you want your people to meditate on and have fixed in their imagination and, and to have trust that, will that it will come to pass, Lord, you know these things are often buried in the recesses of our minds and stuffed down in our hearts because of the ways in which we've been wounded. Teach us to desire again tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Friends, our sermon tonight, it's just called Home. In the last pages of the Christian scriptures is a picture of home. It casts the whole of the cosmos as finally arriving at its destiny. As if everything from the opening pages of the Bible right up to the end were a journey. Friends, God would have us believe that each of us are on the way. That we're on the way right now. And that the whole of our lives is a journey home. Home. Now, what do you think about when you think about home? If the pages of scriptures end with a picture of home, what do you think about when you think about what happens for all eternity? What happens after you die? 
What happens if you've read the Bible or potentially you've been in church services or people have preached about these sorts of things? Um, is this the stuff that will happen? What happens when Jesus comes back? What happens after that? Our sermon series this whole semester is called A Better Story. We've journeyed through the whole sweep of the Christian scriptures. We've discovered and shown over and over again how the Christian church in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit tells a true and better story than the stories we tell. We actually started obscurely in the book of Acts and talked about how maybe you haven't heard this or don't know this, but God wants to be known. He doesn't want to hide. He wants to be known. And we picked it up in Genesis and talked about how God made all things good. There is nothing that he made that's a mistake. Definitely not you. And that the whole good world is bent and broken. And so if you feel alone in your sin, that's a lie. If you want to know why things don't look as they ought to look, there's a true story about that. We talked about an exodus, how the whole world, the whole cosmos is on an exodus story. Jesus is taking his people on an exodus story. And, and where I wanted to land that that week, if I remember correctly, it was maybe you haven't heard that, that following Jesus is not just about having a clean conscience on your pillow at night. It's about redemption, that, and, and the redemp not just of your life from bondage that you're in, although it is that, it's from isolation, it's from injustice, it's from poverty, it's, from, it's, from the, it's, it's a part of the redemption God is accomplishing in all of the cosmos. And the whole thing is this Exodus story. We talked about the tabernacle and how God comes down. We don't go up first. If you think you need to make your way to God, you do not understand the gospel, friend. Which doesn't mean you now need to do a bunch of work to understand the gospel. I just want you to hear God loves you and comes near to you in Jesus. Kirsten preached on the priesthood, how God wants to make us a people of priests, a community of priests. There's a particular um, idea of flourishing in your life that God has for you, and it's actually with others. It's not in isolation. Do you know that God has called you to be a, a, a holy people, set apart for a very particular purpose? Do you know that? We talked about the Holy Lands. Interestingly enough, every single one of these stories, by the way, is going it, to, it, it, it finds its culmination and its fulfillment here and tonight. Each one of these has overlap and dovetails with this evening's talk. That in the Holy Lands, that, that this 40 years of time that David was king, there was a sense in which people looked back on that like the Golden Age, but it wasn't the Golden Age. It, there was aspects of it that might have been a foretaste of things to come, but God intends for his people to be in a place with a king and living in a way of life together. And it didn't happen in the way that God had promised it would happen. And so we don't look back with nostalgia on that. We say, no, we can't do that by our own strength. We need another way. And there's a better story told in the prophets. If God is nagging you, it's not because he doesn't like you, it's because he hasn't given up on you. He is relentless, friends. He will not give up. And Jesus is not just your personal Savior. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Lord of all creation, who is good to fulfill the promises that God has made to his people. And the church is not some incidental community of groupies around Jesus. It is the very way through which God is bringing about his redemptive story in this world. Last week, we talked about living in this life in between Jesus' coming and his coming again. And it's all about mission and our, our, our um, invitation to participate in that. Each time we pause on one of these things, there's a story that's being told by the scriptures 
that the church has been proclaiming throughout the ages that is, is truer and, and, and better. It's also, well, it's truer and better, both. That's, that's a fine summary. Than any of the stories we often tell ourselves about why all things were made or why is there brokenness in the world or why doesn't God leave me alone or what am I supposed to do with Jesus or what's the purpose of the church? We tell shoddy stories about these things. And that kind of dynamic about poor stories and good stories is going to happen again tonight when it comes to what we think about heaven and what happens for all eternity. What do you think happens for all eternity? What images come to mind in your head when you think about eternity? What do you think of? When I was a teenager, maybe you've heard this before, this is so real. I remember beginning to participate in this particular high school ministry that was on, on my high school campus. I remember hearing about heaven and thinking that I wanted to drive a 1969 Shelby Mustang, travel the world, and have sex before I died. Because heaven doesn't seem like the kind of place where you can do those things. I remember thinking heaven sounds cool. But if I'm honest, it doesn't sound as cool as those things. And I hadn't done any of those things. Well, maybe I hadn't done two or three of those things at that point. And I was like, I want to, you can figure it out. Uh, and I was like, I want to I do those things before I go to heaven, you know? Um, because here's why. Heaven to me seemed more like, we throw up this image, the first image. Heaven to me seemed more like this. This might be a little blurry. This is what I thought he- heaven was. Um, just lots of people singing lots of songs. I don't think I imagine it being to a giant cross. I think that might be heretical because it's not to Jesus. They're singing to a, a piece of wood. But um, uh, so if you can imagine Jesus there, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever, a Leonard Skinner t-shirt. Uh, no, um, uh, anyway, that, that's the kind of image, clouds or large worship services, basically a super big, really long worship service. That's what I imagined heaven was. And like millions of millions of years long. So like we're standing here and I'm asking questions as like a 17-year-old, 16-year-old. How do your knees not get sore? You know, like, oh, right, we don't have bodies, right? Okay, then how are you making noises? Because doesn't that have to do with like vocal cords and stuff? I mean, God can do anything. So I don't know, maybe that's the thing. We're not going to get hungry. Now I won't get hungry because I don't have a body. So am I going to like, man, driving a 1969 Shelby Mustang sounds really fun. You know, like, and this is my, this is my dynamic with this sort of image, Right. This picture, anyway, this picture is super weird. But, but if you're like most people in the West, you might believe that what happens for all eternity in heaven is something with clouds and white and gold and robes and wings and songs. My wife and I probably won't know each other. And you know what? We won't even care because this giant cross is in front of us and we're all singing, you know, or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> we won't have dogs. If we really love Jesus, we won't even care about dogs. We won't have single malt scotch. Christians should never have been drinking whiskey anyway. Or we won't, we won't write books because we'll know everything. What a lie that is. That's weird. But somehow people think that. It's going to be boring because we'll know everything. Where did you get that idea? God is the only one who's omniscient, friend. Not you. Or we won't see art. What's the purpose of art anyway? What's the utilitarian function of art? Will we need it in the new creation if Jesus is so beautiful? I'm not even going to look away. I'm going to actually not ever blink. But I don't have eyelids, so it doesn't matter. And I'm definitely not going to travel because there's nowhere to travel because we're in the class. This is the kind of stuff that actually stuff that people in the West think. I don't have time tonight. To, to, I'm not an expert on this. I've read a, a lot about it. But um, to, to explain how over the past 2,000 years, our current images of heaven have been persisting and have, and have been creeping in to our church communities and in Western thought, there are reasons for it, largely rooted in Plato, um, and also in, in sort of proto-Gnosticism and uh, Neoplatonism. If you're interested in those words, you can Google them. Um, you can listen to the podcast and uh, 
find the word and write it down or something um, and do that again. That will explain some of this. Um, I don't have time to get into the history of it, but most people in the West do believe in things like this. That after we die, what happens is we go to heaven and we, we sing in clouds and we're, all, we're super peaceful. Again, nobody asks the question, it seems to me, about singing without voices and, and why that matters without ears and stuff, but that's a thing, right? Um, <clears throat> some people even think we become angels when we die, which is about as logical as thinking we become cats. But that's the kind of thing we believe. And if you think those kinds of things, then like me, you might have a really hard time being excited about eternity. I mean, maybe if you've grown up in a Christian home or a bunch of your friends are really cool and they're all excited about it and they're like, oh my gosh, can you imagine like a million years of like the best worship song? It sounds amazing. It, maybe you don't want to like disrupt that. And so you're just like, cool, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm in. But like, I really think friends, actually I know in our bones, we're not actually super excited about billions of years in a worship service. And I know we're not excited about it because that's not what God made us for. For those of you who've experienced significant trauma in this life, perhaps escape from this spinning space rock might sound pretty good. To fly away, to be freed from our mortal coils, those are the kinds of things sometimes we say. Maybe a worship service doesn't sound like the most fun thing to do for a million years, but to not be hurt anymore, to be away from the hurt that I experience, it's better than this. Tonight, I just want to ask if that's really what God promises. You should know at this point, I don't think that it is. But that's the rhetorical question I'm asking tonight. We're going to look at our scripture passage and just slow down just a bit as we look at it. This is uh, as clear a picture as we get of what God has in store for us. That's not true. This is um, Jesus in his resurrection is the clearest picture we get of what God has in store for us. This is a good picture of what God has in store for us. And as we read it, I want you to imagine what this might actually look like if it were true. Okay, so would you put that Revelation stuff back up? Tucker, thank you. Um, this is again from Revelation 21. If you want to find it in your Bible, this one's pretty easy. It's all the way to the right, just like a page back from the, all the way to the right. Um, and I encourage you tonight, after we're done, after you go home, I would encourage you to start at the beginning of Revelation 21 and actually read to the end. It's just two chapters. Uh, there's going to be some stuff that messes with your grid quite a bit. There's some really cool stuff too. Um, and uh, I want that to shape and inform your imagination. But anyway, let's read the passage tonight. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. This is from the New Living Translation, I believe. Um, whatever translation you've got is a great one. Um, then I saw, this is uh, the Apostle John, a friend of Jesus, a brother of ours, who had a vision. He, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. Pause. If you've ever said, I, Look, I don't just want to talk to God in, in prayer. I want to see him face to face. I want to touch him. I don't just want to, I want him to sit down next to me like he's, like he's one of you in this room at the dinner table. And, and some of us have been trained in churches that, that say you have a lack of faith if you want that. Wrong. That is precisely what your faith should be reaching for. This is precisely what God has in store for you. You should want this, desire this, Maybe, I, I don't mean to stress you out if you don't desire that right now. I promise you, if you are following Jesus, that desire will grow in you. I digress. 
God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I'm telling you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Next verse will trip you up if you want to read it yourself. This is where the Christian hope is located, friends. This is what Jesus Christ promises and secures for us. This that the ho- is the house he's preparing This is the better country we await. This is the promised land. The Christian hope isn't simply in the forgiveness of sins. It's not a little peace on this earth. It's not simply freedom from suffering. It's not a billion-year worship service. It's something far bigger. It's home. Home where there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Home in the sense that it will be communal and physical. It's on this earth, friends, not in the clouds. For the earliest Christians, the paradigm that they had for what's to come, it wasn't paintings of, of a Caucasian Jesus. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the image that they had. They didn't have images of, of baby angels with cherubs with wings and, and, and somehow associating that with hearts. Some, I don't know. They, they didn't, those aren't the things. They had the risen Jesus that they looked at. And he was physical and he got hungry. He sat down and he stood up and he spoke and he hung out with them. They could touch him and hear him. And when they asked to touch him and hear him, he moved toward them and let them. And when they thought about what God had in store for them, they looked at him. And they had hope. Because what happened to him will happen to us one day. You would, if you read the New Testament, you will know this, friends. Jesus is specifically called, we don't live in an agrarian culture, so this gets lost. I've probably talked about it throughout the years a number of times at the house. But Jesus is called the first fruits of the harvest. If, if you are a, a farmer, your first fruits are the first fruits that come up out of the ground during a season. And, and farmers are, are, are anticipating the first fruits and looking at it. Actually, farmers are often nervous for the first fruits because they don't know how good the harvest is going to be until they see the first fruits. But then when that first fruit comes out of the ground, and if that first fruit is awesome, you know what they think? You know what they know? The rest of this harvest is going to be awesome. But if the first fruit comes out of the ground and it's cruddy, then they're like, dang. But here's the trick. If the first fruit comes out of the ground and it's awesome, they have confidence. They aren't just fearfully wondering. They now have confidence at what's to come. The disciples looked at Jesus, and that's what they saw in him. He's the first one out of the ground, Oh my goodness, what if we have what he has when we come up out of the ground? That's truly what they thought. That's what they believed. Probably the best passage for this is 1 Corinthians 15. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But they had hope because when they looked at him, they knew that that hope was for us. What happened to him will happen to us one day. When we come to the communion table, every single week we say something to the effect of we celebrate Jesus' resurrection somewhere in our liturgies, in our words. And we don't say we celebrate Jesus' resurrection simply because that's really cool that our God wins or something, that he had victory over death. 
but because of what it means for us. He is a picture of what's to come for each of us. That's why we celebrate that. We remember his death. We celebrate his resurrection. The Apostle Paul, in a soaring chapter about resurrection, it's one I hope gets locked into like a very familiar, it should be like marked up and worn out because you go back to it a lot section, like Sermon on the Mount kind of weightedness to this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this. The whole chapter is about resurrection. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Which means, listen, like play this out. If, if the reason why you have hope in Christ, if the thing you're so excited about is the way God provides for you now and you don't ever think about what's to come, Paul thinks that's kind of pitiable. He is utterly convinced. He actually ends this chapter by saying, because of your resurrection, which is secured in Christ's resurrection, because of that, you actually can persevere. Which means, I don't know how much you guys, I don't know if you guys take logic classes or whatever, but what that means by implication is that if you don't believe in your own resurrection, it's going to be really hard to persevere in your faith. You are going to think a lot of the things that you do in the name of the Lord are in vain. This is what Paul thinks. I'm going to throw another voice at you, Chrysostom. You know, common name around these parts. A brother of ours who lived almost 1,700 years ago, he reflected on this, saying, quote, even if the soul remains, now imagine, he's talking about heaven or the new earth. Even if the soul remains, being infinitely immortal without the flesh, if my spirit goes away, my body rots, but who cares? It was a rental car. You know, my spirit goes up somewhere, wherever there is. Um, and it's infinitely immortal. Without the flesh, it will not receive those hidden blessings. If the body does not rise again, the soul remains uncrowned with the blessings stored up for it in heaven. In that case, we have nothing to hope for, and our rewards are only limited to this life. And what could be more wretched than that? Think about it. If you're following Jesus, do you know what some of what you're commanded to do? You're commanded to lay down your life for others. And if your whole life is marked by willingly volunteering for suffering on behalf of others, and then you die, Chrysostom and Paul go, that sounds kind of wretched. Pitiable, even. Even if, some even if some spiritual part of us lives on eternally, without a body, how can we receive all the blessings of God in Jesus Christ? How can we receive all the things that Jesus Christ has promised us? Meals, lots of meals, land, good labor, laughter, friends, rebuilt homes and cities and cultures. God has been holding out these promises to his people for thousands of years. We want to feel a little peace in this life right now. God is offering us his kingdom. We just don't want to be so lonely. He is giving us the whole earth. We want to carve out a little space in this life to strike out on our own and do our own thing. He is making all things new for us. What of these promises, though, if we don't have bodies to receive them? And not just any bodies, but our bodies made new. The Apostle Paul tells us in that same chapter that our perishable bodies will put on imperishable qualities. That this body, this one, Touch your arms, touch your shoulders, touch your face, touch, I don't, 
It's weird to say touch yourself, but you know, whatever. Uh, do that. This body, this body will be raised. It will be raised in honor, not some other one. That this body will be further clothed, transformed even. Paul, there's mysterious qualities to this. So he's hunting for metaphors. And at one point he talks about like a seed and wheat. As he talks about it being transformed, and that might seem to you like that's a totally different thing, but it's not. It just looks different. Your body isn't simply something to throw away, according to the Bible. It's not um, just like this earth. It's not, um, you know, uh, the, the old sort of adage was greasing the wheels of a car that's going off a cliff. Or, or a popular one, too, would be uh, polishing the brass on the Titanic. That's not the way the scriptures tell us to view our bodies. It will be resurrected and made new. Perhaps you think it's too strange or difficult for God to resurrect and make your body new, but he who made water into wine and you out of nothing does not find it more difficult to make you new over again. I want to show you a picture to, to, to help frame some stuff right now, and, and, and I'm hoping that I'm pressing in on some things um, that are uh, a bit hard for you to grasp, but we'll get there. But um, I want to show you a picture of how one theologian describes the difference between what we often believe and what God has offered us. Do you have that in my little beautiful drawing? Here's my beautiful drawing. Um, dot grid notebooks, my favorite. Um, okay, so on the left over here is where we are now. Um, and there's a tremendous fun irony in me drawing a little tombstone. Look at that. I got 3D shape in there. Um, and uh, there's supposed to be some grass on either side. I don't know. But there's irony in, in this, this part that's called life having a tombstone. Death. Why? Why is there a tombstone? Because everybody dies. That, that actually is the most, one of the most significant things about this life is we all die. And then, a lot, and then here's what a lot of us believe. We believe after we die, what happens? Well, we go up. We go up into the clouds, into the heavens, wherever that is. That's life after death. And we're with God. This, we're, 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 and this is what we often believe. Earlier I was telling you about this. We often believe we're disembodied, that we're, we're spirit beings or something. We're, we're, um, it's really common to believe this. I, I don't have time to go into all the examples of this, but in our modern culture today, like lots of TV shows and movies and, and, and lots of fiction books, um, stress this as a kind of heaven, this release from our bodies, this escape from physicality, this limitation. If I could just get out of this body, what could I do? Friends, if you get out of this body, you can do nothing. But anyway, uh, well, this is what we imagine. Going up, and we're into the clouds, life after death, present heaven. We sing songs, and this is often where we end. So my grandfather who died, some people may think he's an angel. I think that's silly. Uh, he was a human. Um, but he is now, as a follower of Jesus, with God, singing songs forever, you know, if he's a saint and, and, and you're a Catholic, you, you might believe that he is praying for me right now and, and, and interceding for me, and I can maybe pray to him or ask him to pray for me. Um, you know, whatever. That's what we believe. That's usually as far as our beliefs go in the way that we talk about this stuff, at least at the street level. And when I ask people about their churches and how often people talk about what God promises us in the end, it doesn't come up very much. But this is as far as we go. Well, this theologian that, I'm, that, that uh, presented this idea, his name's N.T. Wright. He's um, arguably, but, but probably considered to be the most um, important New Testament theologian in the world right now that's living today. Um, and he says, we've got it all wrong. The Bible actually says we got it all wrong here, but this is his language. He says, we have confused life after death with life after life after death, <laughs> uh, which is easier to see than it is to say as a sentence. Um, so look, life after death is in the middle, but then what's life after that? 
And that's what Revelation 21 promises. That's what uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, received from God and told. That's what the prophet Ezekiel received from God and told. That's what was being promised in the garden, what was promised in the wilderness. That's what was promised to the king. That's what's been uh, shared to the prophets. That's what Jesus was aiming at. When he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he didn't mean a non-place. He meant a place. And this is the reality of what our hope is, and our hope is over there. I wish I was tall enough to get my shadow over there. Over there. But many of us think our hope is here, and we struggle to actually have much hope because of it. On the right-hand side of that image, you might see the arrow going down. Somewhere right before that is judgment. You can look at Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Uh, Jesus talks about this quite a bit. Every time you see the word day, like the day of the Lord, part of what's included in there is judgment. Um, If you're nervous about that, if you're in Christ, you don't need to be. You know exactly who that judge is and what he's like and what he thinks about you, what he says about you, how he feels about you. And quite frankly, friends, I don't trust me and I don't trust you to make all things right in the world. If, If God is going to get rid of sin and evil off this planet and somehow not do injustice and unkindness in the process... If that needs to happen anyway, I don't trust any of us doing it. I might trust Jesus. He's the judge anyway. And after that, everybody's, before that, everybody's resurrected. He's judges, and then he comes down. The promise in Revelation 21 is not we go be with God. The promise is that God is coming to dwell with his people, that God comes down with us. If God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, now God walks with all people, and the garden has covered the earth. If the garden was a tree of life, if in the garden was a tree of life, on the new earth, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, there's also a tree of life, and it bears fruit during every season. The promise of Jesus Christ, the inheritance he shares with us, is the whole of heaven and earth made new. It's what we allude to every single time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Have you noticed that we pray for that every week when we gather? When the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? Because if you are like most of us, you go, I don't really know how to pray. It should encourage you that the disciples said, hey, Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus taught them how to pray. Well, brothers and sisters, there will come a time when we won't be praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done today on earth as it is in heaven, because one day it will be done, finally. But we are praying, even in the daily prayer we pray, we don't pray, Lord, God, our Father, we pray that we escape this world and go up to you. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how Jesus is training us daily to shape our hopes and our desires for what he actually wants to give us and feed us with. Perhaps at this point, some of you may find this a little bit hard to believe. If so, we're getting close. But if you find some of this stuff hard to believe, it's not because you believe in better things. Think about that. There isn't a single one of us that hopes for or desires greater things than what God has promised us in Jesus. Jesus promises the whole of creation will be made new that there will be no more sorrow or suffering, that we will be known and know God, that cultures will exist in peace and trade with one another in peace, that there will be no more death, that everyone will finally and forever be home. The sum of every dream of every bleeding heart in this room is not close to that promise. 
If I were to ask, if the first question I asked you, maybe this would have been a good exercise. If the first question I said is, if all your dreams came true, what would the world look like? Jesus has promised more. More. You and I, friends, have barely dared to hope for even the scraps at God's table, and yet he promises it still. And it's secure in Christ and guaranteed by his spirit and proclaimed by his church who presses on, not willing to accept the world as it is. Forbid us, Lord, from accepting the world as it is. But bearing in us the crucified Lord is a sign of protest against death and a sign of hope for life in the one who defeated it. We are a people who have never been home and have never had a home. But in meeting Jesus, we know what home is like. We can smell the cookies baking in the oven, so to speak. And we want in. And now that we know what it's like, we can't, you can't settle for something less. Here's how another one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, talks about home. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We can't tell it because it's a desire for something which has never actually appeared in our experience. So we can't tell it. We can't hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. The books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. See, for Lewis, and I love this, it's not even that home came through that book. It's that longing for home came through that book. It somehow got past my defenses. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are the good images of what we really desire, yes. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. The scent of a flower we have not yet found. For those of us whose idea of home has been shattered and marred by the trauma and heartbreak of this world, I pray that this gives you hope that no one is home yet. Everyone who has come before us has not received it, and they await to receive it with us at the same time. I commend to you the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And my prayer is that into the midst of broken home lives and limping images of home, that the scent of a flower would come over the horizon and remind you that somewhere, sometime, it actually exists. And God has promised it to you in Jesus Christ. For those of you who have had good homes, or your memory is stocked with nostalgia and like moments of beauty, where when I ask you what home is like, you can actually picture a couch 
and a blanket, a time of day. Interestingly, all the things you're going to experience are highly physical because your bodies matter. In that place, or, or sorry, you're, if you can imagine that stuff, you'll be tempted to look back and think that home was back there somewhere. In that place with that person, but you weren't home, friends. Some home, or rather some longing and promise of home, came to you in and through that moment. But it was only the scent of a flower that we have not yet found. All was not right in the world, even at that lovely moment. Even in that amazing place, all was not right in the world. Sorrow and suffering still pepper the earth, and you couldn't hold on to those moments anyway. We're not home yet. And my prayer for you is that you would recognize in those moments when the scent of the flower is rich in the room, that heaven and earth are breaking through so that you might taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank God, Christian. And then get up and keep walking, forgetting what lies behind and fixing your eyes towards what's ahead in Jesus. For you seniors, it's like a place like this. If you found some sense of home in a community like this, with some friends in college in really rich ways or something, it's just the scent of a flower. It was never the flower itself. Over the next month, during the Advent season, we do have one more worship service, by the way, next week, but this is like the end of our normal rhythms, right? Um, so I won't get the chance to teach and, and see you guys in this room until next year. But so during this season of, of absence, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to buy somebody a flower. Seriously. I want you to buy somebody a flower and I want you to give it to them and pray that the scent of the new Garden of Eden comes with it into the life of that person. That their hope in a better world is renewed, that they might just for a moment believe that they could find their way home. Lift your eyes to the horizon this Advent season, friends. Look for how the Lord is coming into the world, giving you foretastes of his kingdom to come. But do not mistake the taste for the meal or the scent for the flower. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's promised you a new heaven and earth as your inheritance. Do not lose hope and do not settle for anything less. Let's pray. Father, when we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, um, we are powerless to bring that to ourselves. And Lord, we're probably powerless to bring it to others too, but there is some way in which you work out your kingdom good when we move toward others in kindness and forgiveness and love. And so even now, would you send your spirit to bring to mind somebody that we might buy a flower for? And as we give it, may, may the scent of your kingdom come into their lives and give them hope, teaching them not to settle for something less than what you promised. Not for a little respect or a little rapport or a win here or there or a few decades of work and a nice retirement. Help them to long for something more. God, help them to want home. And for each of my friends in this room, Lord, as, as we turn toward the holiday season in our culture, we're mindful of uh, the way home looks in our own lives. For some of us, Lord, it really is something that we just can't seem to bottle enough. We can't cling to it hard enough. It slips away. Help us to loosen our grip and to just say thank you. 
and to look forward to a time when we will be able to enjoy that in a world where no one is suffering while we're enjoying that. And we don't have to be afraid of time running out because we won't die. And for those of us who look forward to home with some trepidation, anxiety, or even are like, just what home? I pray my friends could find solidarity in the one who did not have a home on this earth. That in all of, in all of the creation, in all of heaven, the one who sits on the throne knows exactly what that's like. And he promises that the meek will inherit the earth. Send your spirit now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take communion and remember what your son has done for us. Friends, take a minute to think about how the Lord might be calling you to respond to him, uh, and then we'll come to the table.